HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Oh, yes, indeed. It is Monday, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Giever, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. And today, we're going to be talking with Allison Rabschnuck, the director of, I hope I said that right, you'll you'll correct me later, right, um, is the director of corporate engagement at the Good Food Institute. Uh, Allison has 25 years of advertising, marketing, and sales experience working with brands, including the Antichrist, such as Taco Bell, Levi, <laughs> Levi Strauss, Gap, Kiplinger's, and Parents Magazine. Oh, uh, and for the last 17 years, she has developed affiliate programs and ad networks for clients that include General Mills, BET, and Gourmet Ads. Allison works with restaurants, grocery stores, food service, and food processing companies to diversify their protein offerings and to help increase the quality and quantity of plant-based products available on the market. Um, 
that is just so cool that you went from that deeply steeped corporate thing. And really, the only way any change is ever going to happen is when it comes through the corporate filter. Um, so I think it's just great that you've gone from, you know, that, that you're advocating for plant-based products in institutional settings. Um, and there's a lot of corporations who have that on their minds. And um, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a long chat with you, Allison, about what corporations are doing um, and how the Good Food Institute helps them. So first, why don't we start with you just telling me what the Good Food Institute is, or telling my listeners anyway. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the oh, show today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So GFI is a two-year-old nonprofit, and our mission is to create a more healthy, humane, and sustainable food supply. So we're convinced that plant-based and clean meat will replace meat from industrial farmed animals. And that in the not-too-distant future, it will seem just as absurd to raise animals in order to slaughter them as it is to commute home by horse and buggy. So it will become a very outdated way of eating. So in food tech, the two big questions we face are, number one, how do we feed 9.7 billion people by 2050? Mm -hmm. And two, what do we do about climate change? So plant-based and clean meat for us, are the answer to both of those questions. Uh, they're inherently better for the environment, a solution for global poverty, absolutely better for human health, and obviously better for animals. Although if so, we don't eat them, we won't grow them. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> so, I don't want a world without pigs and cows and chickens. Absolutely. So <laughs> the, the, way, the way that GFI looks at this issue is that we're approaching the problem from a supply perspective. Mm-hmm. So... Studies consistently show that the primary factors in any consumer's eating choices are three things, which are taste, price, and convenience. Mm-hmm. So in order to compete with animal products based on those three main factors that guide consumer choice, GFI is focused on working to make plant-based and clean meat, seafood, dairy, and eggs as delicious, as price competitive, and as convenient as possible. So our goal is to take ethics off the table for consumers by making the sustainable and the humane choice the default one. Really cool. So can you just define clean meat for me? I'm not sure I really understand what that term is. Does that just mean meat that is pasture-based, uh, you know, grown on a smaller farm? What's what's your definition? Nope. Yep. So, so, so clean meat is basically animal cells that are grown in a laboratory. Oh. So you may have, you may have heard other terms sure. um, like cellular agriculture or cultured meat. Um, but we, we prefer the term clean meat and a nod to clean energy. So it's a way mm. to produce real animal meat using real animal cells from a biopsy, yeah. uh, but in a way that is more efficient and sustainable and humane and, and cleaner, really, than, than uh, conventional meat. Wow. Okay. We have a lot to talk about. So why don't we, <laughs> why don't we um, move right on here and tell us a little bit about some of the plant-based meat initiatives that um, GFI is working with? Sure. So at GFI, we have a lot of different departments, um, but really we break it down into four main program areas. So the first is fostering innovation. So our staff, uh, mostly our scientific staff, in this case, reaches out to top universities in food science, entrepreneurship, synthetic biology, and tissue engineering uh, to create as much private and public sector activity. So all with the focus of advancing plant-based and clean meat. Uh, A great example of this is a plant-based meat curriculum that's now being taught at the UC Berkeley Sudarta Center. Oh, really? So our senior scientist, Christy Legale, 
designed this course with a professor from Berkeley, and it's now in its second session. Mm-hmm. So students are actually being taught like, what is plant-based meat and you know what are all the, the issues and opportunities associated with that. Uh, the other thing we do in our innovation department is to identify white spaces. So we have ideas for companies that need to be founded, and we actively encourage their creation by recruiting founding teams. Uh, we've actually launched two companies so far. One is the plant-based seafood company Good Catch, and mm-hmm. then there's also a plant-based mutton company called Good Dot, which is in India. Wow. Uh, the second, yeah, the, the second initiative is supporting startups. So our innovation department works with plant-based and clean meat startup companies um, that give them help with things like communications, regulatory work, uh, help them create business plans, find venture capital support, and really help out in any other aspects that they need to succeed. So a good way to think of it is is we operate like an accelerator or incubator for the entire plant-based and clean meat market sectors. And how big is Um, that at this point? Let me just dive in there. Just give us an idea of how much money we're talking about in terms of new companies and capitalization and, and, you know, sort of all the things that you help people do. Right. So, yeah, I can't speak to that so much, but we, you know, we have... um, a company, there's a there's actually a company called New Crop Capital that we work closely with, mm-hmm. and they're the ones who provide you know some of the financial support. But we also help the help some of these companies find support from others. There are a yeah. lot of venture funds that have now been launched by some really big companies like Cargill and PepsiCo. Um, so we help some of the companies tap into uh, those funds. Wow. So. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my department, which is corporate engagement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we create collaborative relationships. So really, we want to work closely with companies uh, and not shame them, right. uh, but really work with them to help see the business opportunity. So we work with the largest chain restaurants, grocery stores, and food service operators uh, with the ultimate goal of uh, making plant-based alternatives more widely available. Mm-hmm. So. One of the biggest projects we've worked on is a restaurant scorecard where we evaluated the top 100 chain restaurants, so everything from McDonald's on down, yeah. uh, based on their plant-based entrees. So not surprisingly, a majority of those restaurants had zero plant-based entrees. <laughs> so it really shows us that there is just so much opportunity. So we're in the process of speaking and meeting with some of them and highlighting um, this business case. And, you know, according to Mintel, which is a leading research firm, almost a third of millennials say they consume meat alternatives every day. So we believe that restaurants should not ignore this shift in eating. And if they do, it's most likely going to come back to haunt them in a few years, um, you know, by a decrease in sales. The other exciting thing that we're doing is uh, we're also working with conventional meat companies. So think, you know, some of the largest meat Tyson. companies in our country uh, to share our knowledge of the plant-based and clean meat sectors, both from a market overview perspective as well as a technical one. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So we're talking like Tyson. You mentioned Cargill. They're meat and grain. So that's mm-hmm. huge. Um, <clears throat> who are some of the other... Are you attracting companies from outside of the United States as well as within our borders? Or is it this is a primarily an American um, sort of phenom at the moment, or North American, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the plant-based meat uh, success, and, success and growth is being seen in the U.S., but Germany is also a big com- country um, that's seen a lot of growth, as well as the U.K. Uh-huh. So... Uh, and there are country, there are companies springing up all around uh, the world. I mean, there's there's sun-fed meats, which is out of New Zealand. There's a com- there are companies in the Netherlands, uh, companies in Sweden. So there are absolutely plant-based 
um, you know, the plant-based sector in a lot of countries around the world is definitely growing. I would say the most activity from investment um, and just, you know, from a financial perspective is in the U.S., however. Yeah, I would say so, because, I mean, to jump forward a little bit, uh, you know, the developing world is turning out to be the biggest market for regular meat, basically factory-raised meat. And um, and it's going to be, I think, kind of a heavy lift to uh, tell countries like India and China and Southeast Asia that, you know, you don't really want to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, they're just right? starting to enjoy eating meat. And I, I think it's, I think that's definitely going to be tough. I think climate change will drive a lot of that though, to be honest with mm-hmm. you and how, how yeah. expensive, um, feed crops become. But sure. anyway, we digress. We digress, Allison. We're going to go back. <laughs> We're going to go back because I want to get down to the nitty gritty. Okay. We talked a little about who's playing in the sandbox. Now, what kinds of plants actually are being considered for development in meatless meat? I'm going to call it meatless meat, plant-based meat. And why sure. Why are those? I mean, I'm just curious. I, I really want to get the nuts and bolts. Like, what are you using to do this? Because yeah. it's kind of amazing. So, yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm, not, I'm not a scientist, but I'll, I mean, I'll just okay. give you, you know, some of the information that I know, which is traditionally soy and wheat have been the main pro- plant proteins that have yeah. been used in plant-based meats. Um, tofu, which I wouldn't call it plant-based meat, but tofu has was invented over 2,000 years ago. So some of these yeah. ingredients have been used for uh, a long time. Right. More recently, though, pea protein has started to be used in products from companies like Beyond Meat and Gardein. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other proteins for, for meatless meat come from things like rice and lupin, corn, hemp, canola, chickpea, oats, and mung beans and lentils. Uh, hmm. The vast, the, the vast majority, though, of commercially available plant-based protein ingredients uh-huh. uh, comes from only about two percent of the 150 or so plant species that are currently used in our global food supply. So yeah. there's the potential for a lot more innovation in this space, and this doesn't take into account the almost 250,000 additional plant species that are not used in agriculture today. Right. So you know there are a lot of opportunities to diversify our plant protein sources, um, mm-hmm. and also ensure that the plant proteins are, are optimized specifically for plant-based meat. Uh, companies like Hampton Creek, which is the maker of Just Mayo and their yeah. newly launched Just Scramble uh, egg-like product, have been cataloging plants from about 50 countries into a plant library and then testing them in the lab for oh, various properties um, yeah. so that they can be used in the future for plant-based products as well as for clean meat media. So, You know, when determining which plant proteins are best suited for plant-based meat, scientists look at things like um, whether it has the property to gel, uh, cross-link, so to kind of make fibers that connect with each other, Uh uh, whether it retains water and fat. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if if the goal with the end products is to compete with their animal equivalents on taste and mouthfeel, then these plant properties become essential to the process. Yes, absolutely. Well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, the sort of the science of engineering flavor uh, to mimic most people's perceptions of how, say, chicken or pork or beef. And I can you offer any insight into how you take, um, you know, say, uh, protein from lentils or or even mushrooms? You talked about mushrooms as an option. I think a lot of people are sort of accepting that that can be incorporated into a burger mix, for example, to extend the meat product in it. Um, but what what it, what is the flavor like? How do you create that flavor as well as the mouthfeel? I mean, that's some very complex. Um, science. Do you have, can you, in, you know, in, enlighten listeners a little bit with that? 
Yeah, well, and that's that's what a lot of these companies are, are working towards. So, you know, you look at the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're, they have a lot of scientists on staff who are basically trying to figure this out. So if we look at the Impossible Burger, for example, that contains textured wheat protein. It contains potato, coconut oil, and a novel ingredient called heme. So yes. scientists at Impossible Foods discovered that a molecule called heme is a key factor in how animal meat behaves. So that's a lot, lot of what you know, these scientists do is figure out, okay, if we're trying to mimic meat, what makes meat meat? Yeah. So they, just, they identified that it's a molecule um, that also, guess what, is found in plants. So mm. this plant-based heme is what gives the Impossible Burger its umami flavor, the aroma, mm. the color, and allows it to bleed like cow burgers. Right. So... Uh, and then Beyond Burgers, they contain ingredients like pea protein, potato starch, and then beet juice, which is what gives it its ability to look like it's a little bit bloody, uh-huh. um, and other ingredients. So, you know, the, the taste profile of meat is highly complex. It yeah. comprises thousands of molecules that interact in subtle and not always predictable ways. Um, so the flavor of meat is, is not easy to replicate with alternative ingredients. Um, but that's, you know, a lot of these companies are getting closer and closer to it. So there definitely needs to be, you know, continuous work around the molecular structure of animal meat. So how do we mimic that? Um, and how do we get these plant-based ingredients, you know, to really copy that structure? So, but for us, it's really exciting that some of these big meat and big food companies uh, are getting involved because when you have companies like Tyson and Kraft and Kellogg and Pinnacle as part of the sector, yeah. they bring their expertise in flavoring and other food attributes to the party. So, yeah. you know, the meat industry creates packaged goods that have fla- flavoring additives that don't need to be listed. Um, so the plant-based meat sector could use the expertise from some of their own products on the meat side to bring to the plant-based sector. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, the, you know, and there's money. <laughs> Yeah, there's money to be made. There's, there's money to be made, but there's also they have money to spend. Um, so it really can can get tremendously um, uh, sophisticated. Um, Allison, we're going to take a short sponsor drop right now, and then we'll be right back to talk more about plant based meats because I want to I want to just make an analogy with plant based milk um, and sort of the environmental uh, consequences of things like that. So stay with us and uh, listeners, stay tuned, and we're going to have a quick sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Allison Rabschnick. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking today with Allison Rabschnick, who is the Director of Corporate Engagement for the Good Food Institute. Um, and they have a tremendous initiative going on with plant-based meats, and that's what we're talking about. Um, but, I, you know, before the break, I was saying that plant-based milks have done, you know, tremendously well, almond milk, soy milk, and so on. Um, but they've also, they have some environmental impacts. For example, most of the almonds in the world are grown in California, and most of California is recognizably uh, suffering from water shortages. And so I'm wondering, like, how are are the people who are working on development of plant-based uh, meat initiatives, are they taking into account sort of the future, sort of the impacts of climate change on agriculture and, and what they had need to be mindful of in the future so as not to kind of fall into the same trap that essentially meat is in right now? Mm-hmm. With regards to oh, that's you know. a good question. That's a good question. <clears throat> I think when you compare plant-based milks to dairy milk, mm-hmm. you'll see that dairy-based milk still has a much bigger water footprint than mm-hmm. almond milk. Uh, it takes about thirty gallons of water to produce one gallon of milk, uh. whereas it requires about twenty-three gallons of water to produce a gallon of almond milk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't take into account things like greenhouse gas emissions and environmental right. damage that the dairy industry uh, contributes to. So, but you know, plant-based producers not only want to replicate the taste of their animal counterparts, whether it's dairy or meat, uh, but they also do want to use sustainable, um, they want to use sustainable measures. So Ripple, for example, is the maker of a pea-based milk. Uh, They have an explicit mission to make more sustainable products. So yellow peas, for example, are grown in areas that receive lots of rain, natural rain, so they don't need um, or need very little irrigation. Uh Their bottles are also made from 100% post-consumer recycled plastic. Um, Then we have a company like Sweet Earth Foods, which was actually just recently acquired by Nestle, and they have an environmental commitment as well. They have something on their website called an eco-clock, which shows how many greenhouse gas emissions are avoided and how much energy is saved by consuming their products versus animal meat. Um, Impossible Foods launched a sustainability report back in May, which showed that their burger uses about 75% less water generates about 87% fewer greenhouse gas emissions and requires a lot less land than conventional ground beef from cows. Then you have a company like Tofurky. Um, they're up in the Pacific Northwest, and they're a certified B corporation. So it's meeting a set of standards that includes their impact on the environment. So I do believe sustainability is a very important part for all of the companies making plant-based meat as well as plant-based milk. Fascinating. Allison, thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, that was excellent. I can see why you're the director of corporate engagement, girlfriend. <laughs> Excuse me. I love all these companies and their products. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Um, one thing I, I read in the report, um, and I'm going to read this little quote, because I thought this was an interesting issue to dive into for a second. Um, in the quote, it says, efforts to optimize protein sources for plant-based meat can be rapidly accelerated using whole genome sequencing and digital phenotyping to map desirable traits onto specific genomic loci, or loci. How do you say that? Loci? Loci? I have no idea. Okay. Well, anyway. Sounds good to me. But anyway, my point is, is that isn't that essentially the same thing as what people whinge about with uh, genetically modified organisms? I mean, aren't you genetically modifying plants when you're doing... So are people going to freak out because it's a genetically modified, you know, lentil um, that is going into their meatless meat? Just, I mean... Um, Yeah. Most of these products are not genetically modified. In fact, most people in this space want to move towards organic, non-GMO products. Oh, is that right? If they're not already there. 
So at, at GFI, as far as we can tell, everyone in the plant-based sector has similar concerns about GMO or recognizes that consumers have this concern. Mm-hmm. So really, I mean, the Impossible Burger is one of the only um, products I know that's gotten heat for using GMO soy. It's, it's what's called their, that's basically their hemoglobin product. It's called uh-huh. SLH, which is the key ingredient that makes it uniquely meaty. Um, and it's actually not technically GMO. It's, it's produced by genetically modifying yeast, which then grows the SLH, but it isn't a GMO itself. So, and keep in mind, this kind of ingredient production isn't unusual. Um, for several decades, nearly all cheese has contained GMO-produced rennet. So, and that's in yeah. the United States. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's a, a really a big issue. That's good to hear. I mean, I just thought, I mean, just the description there of, uh, you know, using whole genome sequencing and digital phenotyping to map desirable traits, that sounds like genetic modification to me. And so that's why I was asking that question, because, you know, I personally don't have that much of an issue with GMO crops. What Mm -hmm. bothers me about GMO is that only a few companies control all the seeds. To me, that is a deadly problem. Um, But whether or not you've genetically modified, you know, corn to withstand uh, drought or something like that, I don't really care. And I don't think that's going to have a big impact on my health, ultimately. So, um, but, you know, but with so much of the country, you know, kind of maybe not completely well informed about what GMO is or how it works or, you know, the fact that there are no studies that show that it's you know, definitely having an impact on your health. I, you know, it just, sure. it's such a big deal. Um, but then let's, let's go on to this. <clears throat> in order to serve a plant-based agenda, um, what would have to change in um, agriculture? Because, for example, right now, our biggest crops that we grow in this country are things like corn and soy. And you're talking about crops that don't, <clears throat> excuse me, necessarily use, although soy, I guess you still use, but wheat, um, you know, what other crops are, are, are they going to have to change? Are farmers going to have to change uh, drastically the way they cultivate? Is agriculture going to change drastically um, as a result of uh, something like, you know, say in 50 years of plant-based meats becoming more the norm rather yeah. than the exception? Sure. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, it's probably going to be over the course of 50 years. So this sort, sort of shift would, would happen gradually. It wouldn't be overnight mm-hmm. that farmers would be required or, or need to start planting different crops. Um, but, yeah, I would imagine that farmers would want to start, you know, planting other crops than what most of them now plant, which is corn and alfalfa. Yeah, corn, um, soy, sorghum, be planting alfalfa. more diverse yeah. crops like lentils and chickpeas and lupin and, and others. And, you know, as farmers stop monocropping and using hopefully fewer pesticides, yeah. fewer crops would actually be required. And, you know, the, the important thing to mention here is the fact that fewer of these crops would actually be required as we switch more to a plant-based diet since the inefficient metrics of factory farming, which mm-hmm. is essentially that you need, to, you need to basically grow nine calories of grain mm-hmm. and feed it to an animal in order to get one calorie of chicken, for example, mm-hmm. um, that inefficiency wouldn't exist. So in this right. case, you'd be actually taking 100% of the calories of the grain and feeding it directly to, to humans. So as far as, you know, which crops, the pea, you know, peas seem like the winner in the short term as far as what product is going to be in demand besides wheat and um, and soy, but there will absolutely be demand for other diverse crops. So, and ultimately farmers could probably charge more for some of these crops mm-hmm. um, than, than what they're currently getting because, you know, that the, the crops they're growing now um, end up, you know, being pretty inexpensive feed for animals. 
Yes, absolutely. And they're and they're enormously expensive to grow, both in terms of inputs and water use. Um, and that's and that's going to be more and more of an issue as we move forward into uh, you know an increasingly hot, dry world, um, because at least for the next three years we will not see any change in. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about corporate engagement, um, since you're the director of that, though. Like, I, I want to go back to the fact that, you know, some of the players that you're working with are some of the really, really big uh, food production companies, whether it's a Tyson, a Cargill, or an Archer Daniel Midland. Um, you know, those, I find that these companies seem to be a lot more on the ball vis-a-vis climate change than our government is, for example, or our elected representatives. And I know that they, many of those companies have some significant um, initiatives in hand uh, to work on water and you know food waste, water waste, water usage, and so forth. Can you describe a little bit of how uh, corporate interests are driving these? You know, go in a little more deeply uh, into how corporate interests are driving these innovations because I, I think that's a, an undertold part of this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you actually you see in the, the news that a lot of these big companies are now repositioning themselves as being not a maker of meat, but a maker of protein, right? So the head of uh, CEO of Tyson announced that. Maple Leaf Farms, which is one of Canada's largest meat production yeah. um, companies, has also announced uh, a similar thing. So it's, it's pretty exciting. In, you know, they're, they're understanding that there is a consumer shift that is happening towards plant-based eating. And I think they also understand that it's unsustainable to uh, keep going with the, the methods of factory farming that they're currently using. Uh, again, with the, the need to feed 9.7 billion people by 2050, there's just not enough land in order to raise that many more animals. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think more con- consumers are becoming more, they want more transparency in their food supply. Yeah. And the more that that happens, I think the more that uh, a lot of these companies are going to have to diversify their protein sources. So, you know, it's exciting to us when Tyson announced a 5% stake in Beyond Meat. And I actually read recently they've invested even more wow. recently. Um, other companies have also seen the opportunity for alternative proteins. Uh, Maple Leaf Foods that I just mentioned, a Canadian meat company, yeah. acquired Light Life, you know, which is a, uh, a uh, vegan company that has been around since the late 70s. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, yep. And they recently announced plans to acquire Field Roast. So that's um, in process right now. And then we had Nestle acquire Sweet Earth Foods back in September. Um, and other big companies as well are starting to get on board. Kellogg has a, has a venture fund called 1894 Capital that's invested in Mycotech, which makes a mushroom protein. Yeah. Uh, Pinnacle Foods acquired Gardein, you know, about three years ago. And then we have big companies like Kellogg and Kraft, you know, that own Morningstar and Boca. Yeah. So there is a lot of movement, and you know why they're doing this. I, you know, I think it's again they're they're understanding that there is a consumer shift towards plant based foods, and they don't want to be left behind. How big do you think that shift is outside of the coasts, though? I mean, when you travel in the heartland, do you see a lot of people interested in meatless, you know, in plant based meats or or things like Memphis meat, you know, which is a what you call clean meat. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm just not convinced that outside of the coast that this is this is a trend that is really trending um, in middle America. And I, I wondered how you resp- how you would respond to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Good Food Institute is not a consumer facing organization. We yeah. really focus on the supply side, so the business uh-huh. side. Um, but 
you know, we, we do know, we actually did a custom Nielsen uh, poll. So this is basically, you know, a, re- a research firm that looks at grocery receipts from all the major grocery stores, including Whole Foods. Uh-huh. And we saw that the whole plant-based sector was up 8% year over year. So we know that these foods are increasing. Um, we have not done a deep dive as, to see, you know, what regions of the country these increases are, are occurring in. It might very well be the coast. Um, but if you do look at, you know, there are uh, plant-based options available on restaurants nationwide. Not sure. so much the the chain restaurants, <laughs> um, but we, you know, we know that a lot of restaurants in some more some more of these rural, you know, uh, middle of the the country areas yeah. uh, are featuring these foods. But a lot of it is going to be education. Um, but again, you know, I think our perspective is. Um, we don't think that telling people to eat a certain way is the way to go. We know that consumer right. behavior change is very difficult. Um, so it's, it's in our minds, it's better to offer consumers products that compete on all these things we talked about, taste, price, and convenience. Yeah. And, you know, those products, uh, they are being carried nationwide. So I would imagine that consumers everywhere are eating them. Interesting. I, I, I'm finding this fascinating. Now I'm going to speak for the, the people in the meat industry. <laughs> Like there is an enormous supply chain involved in growing meat and Americans Mm -hmm. eat about 300 pounds of meat a day per capita. Yeah. I mean, a a year per capita. So, you know, I wonder what's going to happen uh, to all of these guys who are, you know, as we said, it's going to be a gradual, you know, a gradual shift. And I believe that will happen. Um, But, but you know, what, where, where do we uh, plug these, all these people in that supply chain into a new supply chain, and and what are some of the challenges involved in that? I I think that's you know there's I forget what the ag sector reports are of how many people are involved in in growing, uh you know processing and distributing meat, but it's it's really it's an enormous uh, sector of our working mm-hmm. population. So I'm just curious, like what what do you guys see as um as the new businesses that will rise up to take. Uh, take the place of what exists now in terms of the of the industrial meat supply chain. Yeah, well, I think the most important thing to note is that there are fewer stages of production, right? That go into plant based meat versus yeah. animal meat. So, making plant based meat is just it's just more simple than growing animals for food. Um, so, when big meat and food companies get involved, though, they can work within their current systems of distribution, which which would be helpful. But as far as you know, you know whether you can say that there's a one to one correlation in jobs from the meat industry to the plant based meat industry, um, that that I don't know. I, I do yeah. think it's just going to be a matter of uh, retraining a lot of workers. So, uh, I would imagine that you know any farmer. Um, who is currently operating a factory farm could very well learn how to operate an extrusion machine to make plant-based meat. Um, And there will always be the need for line workers to uh, package these products and, you know, ship them to the distribution point. Right. Um, You look at a company like Elmhurst, Elmhurst Milk, which is which was an, an old school um, dairy, traditional dairy company in New York. Yep. And they recently shut down their dairy operation and have transformed their company completely into plant-based milks. They now really? make plant-based peanut milk and almond milk and all these different great nut milks. And, you know, they've, they've managed to retrain their existing uh, staff and they're now, they launched this brand new company and they're just making a different product. So, 
um, you know, there are lots of, of manufacturing processes that go into making plant-based meat, and there will be uh, the need for people to be experts in operating some of these machines. It's also a very nascent industry as far as the technology goes. Yeah. Um, so there will be the requirements for, you know, a lot a lot of, of different kinds of workers in the future. There will most likely be people who need to understand programming um, from a quality control perspective. Um, but again, I think, with, you know, in regards to a lot of the lower level workers, I, I believe that there will be uh, plenty of jobs. This is, this is a nascent industry. Um, and when it does get to the point of even matching plant-based milks, so where, yeah. you know, plant-based milks are now 10% of the milk market, uh, plant-based meat is still only about a quarter of 1%. So right. once we get to the same parity as, as dairy is at now, you're talking about a huge, you know, huge many billion dollar business. And um, yeah, I was going to say, because there, there's got to be a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of people who have learned how to do that um, as opposed to what regular dairy is. And, and nobody can argue that it's probably better. Um, right. But what about, you know, I just, I can't, I, I got to go back to like people who've been making their living growing animals for a long. I know it's, you know, I mean, all of these contract farmers, that's what I think about. It's like all of these guys that are somehow in hock to these meat companies and, you know, the way the meat companies operate and their whole political strategy. Um, I, you know, I'm wondering sort of, how, I guess it goes back to your idea of like how it's offering choice. It's not telling people what to do. You know, I, I kind of want to drill down a little bit more on, I guess, the public education aspect of this and how, um, you know, how you guys, how the Good Food Institute and how these companies will sort of persuade people to try these products. Um, I think a lot of people are even leery of trying them, just like they wouldn't want to eat like cricket flour, even though that's going to be mm-hmm. the future too. What, what, what's how? How do we make that shift? How do we do that consumer shift? You're a director right. of corporate engagement. You know it's. <laughs> Well, and that's what, so right. So, and my job is not actually to convince consumers. Again, no. it's, it's to create the supply. So it's mm. so a lot of this will also rest on the shoulders of the corporations who are involved. So, in our discussions with some of these top 100 restaurant chains, yeah, uh, you know, the ultimate motivation for any of these restaurants to carry plant-based entrees uh, on their menus is is not because they you know, most likely want, uh, want to have a more sustainable product or they want to do better by their consumer's health or better by animals. It really mm. is it's a business opportunity, right? They want yeah. to take advantage of, the, of this shift. Um, but ultimately, I think restaurants do understand that people are moving, you know, towards this way of eating mm. and they need to offer up and market these products in a compelling way. Uh, in order to let consumers know that they do now carry plant-based products. So if this is something that's important to to the consumer, and it is important to consumers, I mean, the millennial generation and younger, you know, are proving in research that they they are buying these products. They are looking for these products. This is how they want to eat. And it's not because they're vegan or vegetarian. They're flexitarian. So these are people who one day may eat a steak, but the next day they'll eat a a plant-based dinner. So... Uh, a lot of this has to do with, you know, working with the restaurants and grocery stores on how to market these products. Mm-hmm. So what we found is, you know, there's been there's been research done in this space, uh, and preliminary research shows us that by marking these products vegan or vegetarian, either on the the label of the product in the store or even on the menu, uh, doesn't do these products any good. So our, <laughs> you know, from what we've seen, our recommendation is to 
mix them in with mainstream products. So if it's on a menu, um, you know, have a burger, if it's an impossible burger, right alongside of the beef burger. And don't call out the fact that it's vegan or vegetarian because a lot of times consumers just don't identify with being a vegan or vegetarian. Right. And if they don't, they're not going to order something that's on that part of the menu or has that wording. So... Um, so a lot of it is about how to position these. And, you know, we're again, it's still early days, um, yeah. but there there are organizations that are doing research about around this topic, how to name them and how to market them and, and also what products to even make. Uh, what is it, you know, on a um, meat alternative perspective, you know, that consumers are actually searching for uh, beyond something like a, a veggie burger? Yeah, because I mean, I, that, that was one of my questions is like, are, are there works, in, you know, afoot to have uh, steak? a meatless steak or a meatless lamb chop or, you know, pork chop or something like that, you know, other shapes than ground meat. It's great that Americans love burgers, you know, cause that really works for you guys for the, for the plant-based yep. meat. Sure. But you know, other cuts of, of meat are also super, I mean, steak houses are built on selling steaks. So yeah, will absolutely. that be part of this? Do you think this will, they will be able to succeed in creating a facsimile of a steak? So a significant portion of animal meat today is processed into things like sausages, cold cuts, yes. hot dogs, and similar products. And so for those foods, extrusions, it's basically this big machine, you yep. know, it mixes something up and then feeds it through a, a tube at yep. high pressure. Um, that's the most common method for developing the shape and the texture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of those popular types of animal meat can be reproduced easily with plant proteins and fat right. using essentially the same production methods. Um Getting to those different kinds of cuts, though, like steaks and pork chops, is definitely more complicated. Um, but many of these companies, you know, like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, they have aggressive goals. You know, there's, there's like Pat Brown of Impossible Foods has been quoted as saying that he's after 100% of the meat market. Given <laughs> that, we, we have faith that these companies and others have started figuring out how to replicate cuts like steaks and pork chops from plant-based mm. ingredients. Um, you know, we think that they, they need to, everyone needs to perfect the easier products first sure. and be able to biomimic them before they move on to something more complicated. But um, there's a lot of research happening. There's a, a, a university in the Netherlands called uh, Wangenen U- University, and they've developed yeah. a machine called the Kuwet cell, which is different from an extruder. So it actually allows the researchers there to produce plant-based meat that is really thick and fibrous. Uh-huh. Uh, I saw a picture a picture of something they had produced, and it was like almost like an inch thick. So wow. more improvements in processing methods and machinery, uh, you know, are necessary to better mimic the taste and texture of more sophisticated or, or highly structured types of animal meat products uh, like steaks and pork chops. Right, right, right. And um, what about export? I mean, we make a lot of money on exporting meat. <clears throat> And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if, I mean, okay, so, so that's going to be a big factor of change in the future, too, if plant-based meats really take off, um, you know, because it, that's a big part of the national economy. I forget what the, it's like 4% or something like that of the GDP. Sure. So quite, quite significant. And that's, that's another aspect where I would see plant-based meats, um, you know, not, not giving the jolt, uh, the economic jolt, or will we continue to... Do you think we will continue to, or will we export plant-based meats instead of real meat? What do you think Absolutely. that future is there? Yeah, so so at GFI, we, we actually get inquiries quite frequently from companies in uh, other other countries who are looking to import some of these products mm-hmm. uh, from the United States. 
And again, as I mentioned before, there are many companies that are springing up in countries around the world as well. So we actually have a director of international engagement, and she's in the process of opening up offices uh, overseas. So we already do have a GFI office in Brazil, and we now have one in India. We have plans in the future to open one in Asia uh, and other places as well. So you know, there, there is definitely an opportunity for, for export. There, there are opportunities to create, you know, subsidiaries of, of some of these um, uh, companies overseas. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter necessarily of having to ship, you know, animals overseas or animal parts. It's really if you can get these same ingredients, um, then you could create distribution facilities over there. Yeah. Uh, China is definitely a big opportunity, as we all know, Um, you know, given that the government has pledged to cut per capita meat consumption in half by 2030, we're very optimistic that plant-based meat options will see a lot of success in China. Yeah, uh, the government, like the, their government has said that they plan on achieving this meat reduction mostly through education. But our work at GFI will be to work with the government to understand the need for more products that biomimic meat. You know, again, there's no need for Chinese citizens to deny themselves the experience of meat. Uh, we know that we can create plant-based meat products that will give people the same sensory uh, experience as regular meat. So I think education is important, but again, we need to have the supply of products uh, available to consumers to easily make that switch. Yeah. Well, this is we got to wrap it up here, Allison. But this has been a fascinating discussion. So now is your now is your opportunity to promote uh, GFI shamelessly. So tell people more about it and where they can. <laughs> where they can find out more about this. You had a great report on this. Um, You know, just way more information than we could really uh, drill down on in one, you know, 45-minute segment here. So um, let people know what what, what they can expect to learn when they go to the GFI website. Absolutely. So highly recommend people go to gfi.org. And you'll see a link to subscribe to our newsletter. Highly recommend you do that. We also have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter account. So we have lots of great information that we're sharing on a weekly basis uh, about trends that are going on in this industry and new products that are being launched. Uh, And we talk about all sorts of issues from regulatory to SciTech to corporate engagement. So highly recommend that everyone subscribe to our newsletter. And we should definitely do a second podcast because there's so much more to talk about. It's an exciting time in this space. Oh, I'd love that. Well, I will be in touch, Doll, so we can schedule that for the next <laughs> for the new year. Absolutely. No, I'd really like to do that. I'd like to talk about dairy, too, because you seem to know quite a bit about that part of the industry, plant-based dairy. And I'm really interested in dairy right now. So um, yeah, thank you yeah. so much, Allison, for joining me today. Thanks to my wonderful sponsor, The Hearst Ranch. And uh, thanks, as always, to my wonderful engineer, Vitor. And uh, we'll see you again soon, like next week. <laughs> thanks for listening, folks. So long for now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.